This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. My name's Hedwig. I have red socks. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. Uh, I am your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on? Howdy. Um, I'm hoping I can actually talk about Split. I, uh, <laughs> I just got out of Endgame last night. It was like a 11.30 showing, so I didn't get to sleep till like almost 5 a.m. Mm. And so I'm functioning on almost no sleep, and I really, really, really want to talk about Endgame right now. So I hope I can stay focused. If I, if I sound distracted, I'm just imagining Cap and... Tony and all those cool things that happened. Don't even think. Don't even whisper. In fact, oh, yeah, there was this one scene where he did this. And- don't even think about spoilers <laughs> in case somehow I pick them up supernaturally. I don't know. Uh, I'm not seeing it until a few hours, and so I'm going to try to keep my focus squarely on the episode at hand uh, and not at whatever it is I'm about to witness. Uh, but fortunately. The film that we are talking about is is one that, that deserves to be talked about, because uh, today we are talking about Split, the second uh, in M. Night Shyamalan's comic book trilogy. That no one knew was the second chapter until it came out. Exactly. So hopefully this, this film will be able to keep our attention. All right, before we move into our discussion on Split, I want to ask you guys uh, to please just take a moment and head over to iTunes and just leave us a rating review and also subscribe. Uh, That would just be very helpful to us. And also, if you want to keep up to date with all our latest episodes and give feedback that we can uh, read on the show, uh, head over to Facebook and like us there at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. And so I asked on Facebook uh, what our listeners thought about Split, and we got a couple of responses. Uh, Derek said... To be honest, outside of McAvoy's performance, it felt like the usual Shyamalan schlock. Which I don't even know what to make. That like, is he one of the crowd that just never liked Shyamalan, or is he lumping it with Shyamalan's bad things? Like, I don't know. I need more more data. But either way, boo. Yes, I agree. Uh, Chris said, "Excellent psychological thriller, easily in the top five for Shyamalan, and outstanding performances by its lead." See, Derek, be like Chris. Paul said, "A well-made movie." Samuel said, "I liked it." So did I. All right, so uh, moving into the main discussion, let's talk a bit about the -the behind-the-scenes story of this film. So we said in the last episode that the original idea for this movie goes all the way back like into the late 90s, uh, back before The Sixth Sense had even come out. In the original concept for Unbreakable, The Horde, or a Kevin Wendell Crumb, was going to be the main antagonist with Elijah Price, as uh, not even as the villain, but the, just the Obi-Wan Kenobi mentor figure or whatever. But Shyamalan was having trouble fitting such a crazy outlandish character into the very subdued tone of Unbreakable. Um, so the orange man took over that role. And you can see the similarities, you know, with Don, you know, rescuing kidnapped children who are being held captive. Like you could see that he kind of just stuck the, the orange man into the scenario that the horde would have very, actually very easily fit into. And now uh, people have been asking about a sequel for Unbreakable basically ever since that film came out. And Shyamalan was always open to it, but he never really committed to the idea. And uh, I feel like we have to give some kind of context for where Shyamalan's career was in 2016. Um, So I'm just going to do kind of a quick rundown of his films since Unbreakable. So he had Unbreakable in 2000. After that, he made Science in 2002, which was pretty well received. Uh, That's actually my favorite film of his. Same. Then there was The Village in 2004, which seems to be kind of the beginning of the end for him, at least 
in the public perception. Uh, like Unbreakable, it was very mismarketed. Uh, it was sold as a horror film when actually it's you know a quiet drama and love story. Uh, it got a very mixed reception. Um, I, I just feel like no one knew what to make. It's a very strange movie, and I, I've I came I've come around to really appreciating, but it took like five viewings. Like I, I was very mixed on it up until like my last viewing a few weeks back. Yeah, I've I've always really enjoyed it, but I kind of watched it along with Signs uh, as long back as I can, kind of as I can remember. Um, but I've always much preferred Signs. Yeah, I, I understand why someone would dislike that more than let's say like Signs. Uh, then you have Lady in the Water uh, from 2006 and The Happening in 2008. These are both uh, original films from him that were completely panned. Uh, the Happening is regarded as one of the worst films ever made. Uh, then you have after that you have the era where he was working as a hired director on other people's projects. He wrote and directed the film adaptation of the beloved animated show Avatar: The Last Airbender, which was simply titled The Last Airbender because there was another popular popular film uh, in 2010 with that name, um, and everyone hated this movie, especially fans of the show. Uh, like the happening is also regarded as one of the worst big budget films ever made. Um, then he did Will Smith's sci-fi passion project After Earth, starring Jaden Smith in 2013. This was also panned, but. Uh, I really feel like a a large part of the negative reviews was just people hated Shyamalan at this point in his career. Like it's it's not a great movie, but there's there's a level of vitriol in those reviews that doesn't feel entirely genuine. Um, have you seen that? I haven't actually. I think the only ones that I've seen that people outright hate is The Happening, and so I've always been softer on Shyamalan than most, just because. I've enjoyed the by far majority of what I've seen from him. So you know, at this point in his career, like uh. Before his rebirth with the visit, I feel like he was pretty much considered to be like the maybe right under George Lucas as like the biggest example of a celebrated filmmaker who just completely lost their touch. You know, people are actually coming around on George Lucas now, uh, and they're coming around Shalamon. But uh, yeah, he just he was just in a really bad place. He was he was a joke, and which I don't know. Like I don't know what that has to do to a guy you know, after being where he was and then. You know, so completely falling from grace. But uh, then in 2015, he self-financed the tiny found footage film called The Visit. He paid for the whole thing himself and uh, got it distributed through Blumhouse, um, whose specialty is very low-budget horror films. Love Blumhouse. Yeah. Um, and this was a huge hit. It made almost $100 million on his $5 million budget. Uh, but most importantly, it got uh, Shyamalan his first good reviews since The Village in 2006 or 2004. Like like the, the visit like wasn't really celebrated, but uh, and you know a lot of people actually don't actually like it, but it it got decent reviews. I think it's like in the sixties, and, and most people and you know it was like this was actually competent, which was kind of surprising from where Shyamalan was in his career. So like it, it did get people to kind of look at him differently. Um, so that's kind of the overview is setting the stage of where Shyamalan was uh, leading into Split. So when it came to casting it, uh, the film went into pre-production immediately following the release of The Visit, which uh, which was in late 2015. Uh, Shyamalan had been interested in McAvoy for the role of Kem- uh, Kevin Wendell Crumb, uh, but he was originally unavailable. So Joaquin Phoenix was brought on for the role. Uh, and that would have been probably amazing as well. Um, but then did you know this before I didn't know this at all actually Um, I didn't know really anything about the production of it leading into it you know I I wasn't I didn't hate Shyamalan but I was also not you know completely enamored with with what he was doing either so I just when I was like oh I'll I'll go and see it Um, but yeah I knew very little going into the film but 
Due to scheduling conflicts, uh, Phoenix had to leave the role and McAvoy became available again and was hired. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who had just come onto the scene uh, in The Witch, was cast as the lead Casey. Uh, Betty Buckley, who had worked with M. Night Shyamalan uh, in The Happening, was cast as Dr. Fletcher. So she had a real life, uh, real life uh, comic book alliteration name. Haley Lou Richardson and Jessica Sula play Casey's fellow kidnapped victims, Claire and Marcia. Brad William Henke was cast as Casey's Uncle John. Uh, and Sterling K. Brown had an entire subplot as Dr. Fletcher's friend and neighbor that kind of comes in and out of the story. Uh, but his entire story was excised from the film and editing. Uh, which, you know, having seen that, they're fun little Shyamalan kind of scenes, but they don't really serve the larger story, so I get why they were removed. Uh, Shyamalan, of course, had his own cameo as a security guard at Dr. Fletcher's apartment. Uh, and then, would you know it, at the very end, Bruce Willis as David Dunn shows up, uh, signaling to the entire audience that they had been unwittingly watching a sequel to Unbreakable the whole time. Getting Willis as Dunn in the film uh, was actually pretty complicated, because while Split was being done, uh, was being distributed by Universal, Unbreakable had been released by the Disney subsidiary Touchstone. Um, so they were able to come to a deal where Disney allowed them to have Dunn and Split, under the condition that they would be involved in the sequel. See, Disney's not just a monster. They do good things. <laughs> but sometimes they're a monster. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> they gave us Endgame. All is forgiven. So as he did with the visit, uh, Shyamalan completely self-financed the $9 million budget on Split. I'm like totally speculating here, but I really don't think that is something he would have he had to do. Like I'm sure M. Night Shyamalan could scrape together, you know, five to ten million if he need you know, especially after you know the kind of comeback on the visit. Like the happening made money, the last airbender made money. It's not, like his name still means something meant something at this point. I I really feel like this this was more his own choice that he he felt like he had to get skin in the game rather than like a I, I don't I really don't see how he couldn't have gotten five million, you know? Yeah, I bet I mean, honestly, his name probably meant more in the industry than it does to audiences because, like you said, he still had a way of, of making money in several of his, even some of the ones that were, were panned. So. And The Visit had just made $100 million, so he could have gotten $10 million. So, and, and in interviews, he definitely feels like he's, he's very much aware of where his name was, and this, this kind of seemed to be a, a, a personal thing. Like, this is this is his investment. This is his project. Um. So, apart... A of a Shyamalan you're trying to reinvent himself as a new filmmaker was surrounding himself with, with uh, people that were very new to the industry. He got Mike Gulakis uh, as director of photography. At this point, the only film of note he had done was the 2014 horror film, It Follows. Have you seen that? Uh, I haven't, but I've heard really good things. Same here. Pins principal photography began in November of 2005, and of course, it was shot in and around Philadelphia. So for the film's post-production and release, uh, this is kind of... It, it kind of exists in the area of rumors, but I've heard that uh, Shyamalan and James Newton Howard kind of had a falling out during the production of After Earth, uh, and that was the last film they collaborated on. So again, as part of hiring new talent, Wes Dylan Thornton was brought on to compose the film's score. Uh, he had only done a very small handful of features, none of which had actually been released at that point. Um, the original plan was to use old Ennio Morricone uh, music and set it to the film. But after that uh, that plan didn't work, he had Thornton write an original score. Um, the original cut for the film was actually around three hours long, 
the editing process included, uh, as I said before, completely removing Sterling K. Brown's entire character and subplot. That's crazy to me because the the film is under two or just under two hours, I think. So uh, a good bit of it ended up getting chopped. Uh, there was some question of whether or not the final scene of the film with Bruce Willis would be uh, cut from the film while it was premiered at Fantastic Fest. Uh, but they ultimately decided to show the whole thing and just ask the audience, please don't spoil it. Which they didn't. And yeah, that, just, you know, huge respect to those people because this would have gotten clicks. Definitely. Uh, I was, uh, I remember watching um, Chris Stuckman's review and he seemed like there was something he wanted to, he wanted to divulge. There was some secret he had, but he and I guess just along with everyone else did a good job of of keeping a keeping a lid on it yeah so so somehow it never really leaked before the film's wide release on january 17th 2017 uh and it released alongside the founder and triple x the return of xander cage i uh so this was fairly recently so obviously we, rem- we remember our first viewing um so rather than do that let's talk about like what was your what was your feelings on Shyamalan? leading into this film and what were your thoughts going into the film because obviously the film turned out to be something very different from what we expected like what, what was your mindset going into this film as far as Shyamalan and the film itself and what did you think about it and have you uh, has your thought have your thoughts about it changed since then uh so like I said I've I've never really disliked Shyamalan I've only seen this will be crazy I only saw Sixth Sense one time and it was years and years ago so much like I barely even remember like it outside of like the big scenes but you know grew up with signs as a household favorite watched it on repeat uh watched the village quite a lot as well um didn't really see anything after that that was panned except for the happening and so because signs was just an all-time favorite and still is for me um and because i do enjoy the village uh i I wasn't going into this thinking like, well, let's see if Shyamalan's able to get himself back together. You know, I I trusted that people were right in saying that Last Airbender and and uh, After Earth and and Lady in the Water and stuff were weren't good at all. But uh, but I th- that didn't really make it into my own mindset and and how I viewed him. And I saw the trailers and I thought this looks really really good. Uh, McAvoy looks like I'm already like ready to give him an Oscar based on these trailers, um, and it's really say the when you when you say that you know it, it turns out to be different than what we expected. To me, watching it, it it felt definitely like what I was expecting to get myself into, except up up until the very ending, whenever he pretty much just becomes the beast and starts climbing on walls, and then I I started thinking like okay. Maybe this, because it didn't work for me initially. Uh, and I was like, maybe this is the kind of stuff that he does, but just to a much worse extent in these other films. But then David Dunn shows up at the end and completely recontextualizes the whole movie. And, and then the wall climbing completely works. But uh, but yeah, I was I was hopeful walking into it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's it, it continues to be another reason of why I still enjoy Shyamalan as a director. So would this have been your third viewing leading to the podcast? Yes. Okay. Um, like I really did not know what to make of it going in. You know, I've always been like, you know, I've always been rooting for Shyamalan. Uh, so I was, you know, cautiously looking forward to it on that front. I liked the business. I didn't love it. So it, like it was, it's one of those movies where like, if it was just a little bit 
to push to one side it could have been bad but it ended up being fun so you didn't know if like is he really back and the trailer looked like way more outlandish than like Shyamalan had ever done before or okay the happening happened but <laughs> like from, from the Shyamalan I had experienced and like I couldn't tell if uh, James McAvoy was like amazing or terrible just doing the clips they showed out of context so I really just did not know what to expect going in and like you, I really enjoyed the experience. And then once the beast came, I was like, "Oh, so we're that kind of movie." Oh, okay. I, 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 oh, like you've earned my goodwill. I'll go along with it. But I really wish you didn't do this. And the same thing when David Dunn came on screen, I'm like, "Oh, wow! This this is not the movie I thought I was watching." And it, as you said, it recontextualized everything, and it made me love it. Um, honestly, I think that's probably up there, like with my all time favorite theatrical experiences. Just you know cutting to David Dodd and I remember being in the theater like half the crowd got it and the other half didn't it was just like it was the whole theater just started buzzing it was it was so so much fun yeah so I really came around to appreciate it even more on the second viewing then I rewatched it um then I rewatched it it and unbreakable before glass and then I saw it again so this would have been my fourth you know fourth viewing and I said you know come to like it even more and more with each viewing so right at the start I, I want to just talk about Shyamalan's style and this this film is very different in style from Unbreakable, whereas that film was was you know shot in a lot of very long takes where the camera just kind of drifted around the scene, often you know often covering both characters in a single shot. There's something very soft about it. Yeah, and it was just it, it was always going to these very beautiful comic book panel compositions. It felt it felt very deliberate, but also very quiet and unobtrusive in how in how intentional it was the, the split kind of feels like the opposite there's something almost garish and disconcerting about the cinematography like it, there's a lot of cuts and there's like a lot of the way he uses shot reverse shot is really fascinating here where he essentially just sticks he just puts the camera fa- facing directly into the character like with him in the middle frame and then cuts to the other side where it's just the other person in the frame. It's not, there's no over the shoulder or any kind of, there's not even like a 180 degree thing going on. It's a very subjective and kind of unnerving type of cinematography for the way he does interactions. It's just, it puts you it really, it really puts you in the experience of these characters. And he does a lot of little quirks to, because this film is all about power dynamics, whether it's Dr. Fletcher and Barry or Dr. Fletcher and Dennis. There's these long conversations where each character is like struggling for dominance and trying to get their point, their point across, their viewpoint across. And then there's the whole thing where the whole subplot of Casey trying to manipulate Hedwig. And so he's constantly just playing with the power dynamics and the way he skips over the 180 line or like will just kind of subtly shift to to get just a slightly awkward angle of one character to show that they're on the losing end while a really confident angle on the other character to show that they're winning. It's just, it's, there's so much to watch in just how he shoots these scenes. And it, it's, it's a very unnerving approach to cinematography that I really loved. Yeah. The film also just has like the sense of claustrophobia around it, even in the way that he shoots it, not just the location itself. You know, it's really like, because I, I would kind of agree in that this feels very opposite of, of Unbreakable in that you described Unbreakable cinematography as, you know, often just completely unobtrusive. And here it feels the opposite of that. It, it feels very obtrusive, like it's intentionally trying to stick itself 
like right in 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 the moments of things it almost feels like it doesn't belong like the the scene where we're following um everyone to the car and we're pretty much following from uh, this outsider kind of perspective and the way the way the camera's tilted and it it's almost eerily just kind of gliding towards the characters as everything happens and and the voice it's also the the sound design's good where like the voices are just kind of muffled in the background like like we're not a part of this situation that's happening we're just kind of looking at it from uh from far away and and obviously you don't really have that same kind of thing going on with the rest of the film once they're captured but you still have that idea of like it it feels like it's where it shouldn't be it's intentionally making some of these things look and feel awkward um just really really cool ways of of evoking the kind of tone and atmosphere through the through the use of his camera and i there's i had to talk about the way he uses perspective like there's so often where he just puts us in the eyes of the character and we don't see things like even though we know something is happening, like with the way he just kind of reveals information as the character is doing it. Like, uh, I love the way the opening scene in the car where like we're just we're just on Casey. She's in her own little world. And like, we don't even notice the you know, uh, Dennis getting into the car until she, she sees in the mirror she sees the, the the spilled groceries in the mirror and then we cut to the inside of the car as she slowly turns over terrified and then we see then we cut to her perspective and watch Dennis take out the two girls and I just love the way like he Dennis doesn't even notice her there and she's just kind of sitting there paralyzed and the all the sound starts just this rumble of fear and that drowns out all the sound and then as soon as she opens the door and the thing dings the sound comes back in it's just it's such a beautifully directed little scene you know we, we've seen so many scenes in cars and movies before but, I, but i've never seen anything you know as intricately uh staged in such a tight space as this so um another way that to me this really stood out from um from unbreakable was in how he edited it as well uh this was actually one of my biggest criticisms the first time watching it although it's kind of all but dissipated uh since is i felt like the editing was a bit jarring here where you know we wake up with the girls there and then we cut to these flashbacks and then we wake back up here and we have some conversations and then we cut to flashbacks and we cut to Dr. Fletcher and then we like for a movie that's as you know mostly self-contained as it is there is a lot of jumping around to different narratives happening um and Unbreakable felt very very focused often um and and singular in the way it presented itself but you know like i said just for a movie that's that is so isolated there's a good bit of stuff that he's still juggling uh and i think on retrospect and rewatches uh it doesn't bother me anymore it kind of helps escalate that sense of of paranoia and this constant intake of of knowledge on the viewer's part yeah, so like I have some issues with the pacing in the first like forty minutes. I feel like the first act he's kind of trying to find his stride. Maybe that's a result of how much was cut out. Like the cuts to Doctor Fletcher don't always feel the most natural. But I do love the way he uses flashbacks in this movie. The placement is very interesting because there's they come and go without warning. But on this last view, I really noticed that there's always they're always playing very directly to something that's happening in the moment. Normally with Casey. Where like something will happen, and then she kind of retreats back into herself, and we cut to a uh, kind of a thematic uh, 
something that's thematically relevant with her father and uncle over the hunting trip, where we slowly learn about her past as it becomes, you know, deeply relevant to the story. Uh, I just found the, the flashbacks very uniquely done, but also very thematically relevant. However, as I said, the cuts to Dr. Fletcher and back to the girls do feel a little random at times in, the, in that first 40 minutes. I think the second and third acts really find a stride and they're just like, con- it's just this beautiful build of constant dread. But yeah, the, uh, my my biggest criticism for the movie would probably be that, that first act just in some of the structuring. Yeah. And it makes sense because her, Dr. Fletcher's subplot becomes more and more relevant to our, to our main plot, our main narrative uh, as the film goes on. But her purpose in the first act is kind of just to start feeding the audience information. Uh, there's a lot of exposition on her part, you know, her, her little, her Skype seminar and everything. Um, and so it does kind of feel like we're arbitrarily cutting to her at times, just so we can learn something new in like little bits instead of just like one scene with her in the first act that gives us everything we need to know. But because there's no real natural connecting point between um, the kidnapped girls and her at that point. You know, I don't even really know unless she, one of the things that I was thinking was um, maybe if we could, but you can't do that because it would spoil that Barry is, is really Dennis. Um, I was just thinking some way of, of linking the two plots with, with seeing the initiation on Barry's end and then well I guess I guess you could still do that without totally giving it away but uh yeah that, I guess those those are just my thoughts in trying to help bridge those those cuts between these two different plots well since we're on that the subject of Dr. Fletcher like before we move on to uh Casey and uh Kevin let's just talk about her um I think Betty Buckley is just fantastic in this role like I really believe that she is this woman, you know, completely obsessed with this, this, these DID patients and this, this whole new world of possibilities she thinks she's discovering. But also, like, there's a very interesting balance of, like, unhealthy obsession and, you know, possible exploitation of her patients mixed with what I feel to be a very genuine emotional connection and desire for what's best with these with these people like i feel like the film kind of plays to both sides but like i don't think there needs to be a contradiction you know people are complicated and i just like that they 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 put that layer of complexity into her character i think she plays both sides really well um just like just i think there's a there's a great emotion to her character mixed with i think the you know, the very sharp intelligence the, the her kind of battles of wits with Barry slash Dennis are honestly fascinating to watch. Like, at, at like the the problem with her character overall is that she is given so much really clunky exposition where she is literally repeating facts that we already know as an audience. I feel like Shyamalan was kind of worried that the audience wouldn't be following. So whenever he had any doubts about clarity. He's cut, he cut to, he cuts to Betty Buckley and has her gives the exposition to make sure we're up to date. But, but so often we had already learned that information. It feels like it's just repeating it. It's, like he, it feels like he's very uh, he doesn't have a lot of confidence in the audience. Um, and you know that's understandable given some how to how some of the audiences have like received films like Unbreakable and didn't come to appreciate it until multiple viewings. So I understand that instinct, but it, it gets pretty awkward sometimes. However. 
I do have an excuse for it. When she is talking to Dennis pretending to be Barry, in my mind, I pretended that she is telling him things that Barry would know, but Dennis might not. So she's like just giving him information to try and get him to emotionally react so she can confirm whether it is Dennis or not. Like, so she's, she's giving us exposition on the character, but also poking him subtly with information he should have known to get a rise out of him. I don't know. That's my head kidding. See, and I, you know, I don't know. I think that that's a, a valid interpretation because I think the way she reads those lines is it almost feels kind of poking and prodding where she's like, oh, yes, you told me this and blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, you always so, uh, do so-and-so. Or she, it, it is very on the nose, but it it doesn't sound conversational all the time. And so I think I think there's credibility to that to that idea. And and like you said, though, Buckley herself, she's fantastic in the role. And I think she's the perfect kind of actress for Shyamalan, who can just, like, deliver these lines with such... Uh, earnestness and to like it it feels like she is on the exact same page as as the story itself and just in terms of reading the the tone and everything and and balancing the more you know kind of funny elements that that Shyamalan uh, brings to his films while you know really being serious when it needs to be serious And, and as a character like you said there's there's more to her than I think had to be there and i like that about it that despite the you know despite how arbitrary cutting to her may feel at times and and uh just how on the nose some of her exposition you know the the amount of times that we're just explained the intricacies of did from her gets pretty high in the film and would have been way higher if the sterling k brown subplot was left in yeah we literally have her in the movie teaching a lecture to random people as well as meeting some random colleague and having another long conversation about it. There's no real natural way that it it gets folded into the script, but regardless, she plays it all so straight and so well that I can't help but really appreciate the character. And and like you said, there are nuances. One scene that I did enjoy that was cut from um, the, uh, the Sterling K Brown subplot, or maybe not scene, but just line, uh, was was when she was she's talking to him and this is uh, like I said this is her, her neighbor that she has like grown close to she's telling him you know I'm, I'm not just exploiting you for my work sometimes I feel jealous of uh, of my DID patients because they never have to feel alone and so I think that does add like this extra layer to her character where it's not it's not exactly that she's exploiting exploiting but i don't know i guess the line becomes blurry where it's almost for this this kind of self reasoning of seeking a a usefulness to or for these other people you know like a a place yeah and and that's where the sterling k brown subplot came in where it, it was it was also really illustrating her loneliness as a person so just moving into the main characters uh I think, I think we'll start with Casey. I, I feel like in the, our previous conversations, you've been kind of lukewarm on her as a character. Maybe that's just maybe compared to how effusive I am. But like, are you still like that? Or were you, or were you ever like that? Or what are your thoughts on her now? Yeah, I, I always enjoyed her character in Split a lot from the very first time I watched it. I've always loved Casey in this. 
uh, it's it's glass where I have issues. Okay, but no, I, I within the context of Split, I love her as a character. Okay, cool. First off, Anya Taylor Joy. This 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 girl is gonna be like Meryl Streep one day, or like Kate Blanchett. She's she's incredible. Just the the amount she can communicate with just a look is insane, because she doesn't actually talk that much. So much of her this performance is just these reactions, and yet she is communicating volumes. It's oh, it's so good, but just the character itself. I love the way Shyamalan does this because she starts off kind of unlikable. Claire is the natural lead in a you know in a horror film about kidnapped women. She is the lead. She's the one with charisma who is the natural leader. She's smart. She's constantly trying to you know being uh she's constantly trying to figure out a way to get out of there. Whereas Casey Casey would be. The kind of unlikable character that's just there so there can be conflict between the hero and then she would have died in some very satisfactory way in the third act, you know? Like, that's the way a normal horror film would go. But but I love that instead he chooses to focus on her. And like I don't feel like he's demeaning uh, Claire or Marcia necessarily, but maybe maybe he's poking at the tropes. Because the, the the whole thing is about you know pain how pain and suffering, in a way, prepare. I don't, I don't know if prepares the right word, but it made Casey better fit to survive than you know these you know decent people who had a nice life and never had to struggle, who think that her two months of uh, karate at the King of Prussia Mall <laughs> might help her in the situation. Like, I, it's an interesting line. I don't. I don't feel like he's demeaning to them, but it's also. It feels like it's kind of poking at the tropes. Yeah, I think his handling of of their characters are ones where if I could ever, ju- if I could just sit down with Shyamalan and talk about the the film with him, one of the things that I'd want to ask is, you know, like what, what is it that you're trying to say about these kind of characters? Because because like you, I don't feel like it was demeaning. It never really feels mean spirited. And, you know, towards the end, as, as they're separated and you've got that hope of them escaping with the, the hangar and everything, the film is, is you know, urging you to root for them the, with the way the music, the cuts, everything. We're, I don't think we're ever meant to dislike the characters. Because, um, like you said, really, Casey often behaves in the way that that kind of character would but even still i don't think he's tr- like completely flipping the script because i i don't think he's trying to get us to dislike their characters the way we we might with someone like casey in another film a, a shallow film that was trying to upset expectations would have made the the normal heroes jerks yeah but it, they're just they're just people yeah and um part of me wonders um how much he was trying to say through them or you know, and I don't mean this in a, in a in an insulting way, or just maybe if they were just kind of a means to an end and serving the story he had for Casey. You know, if he was really trying to say anything profound with these kind of characters, or if they were literally in the story to function in a role of of showing what it was about Casey's life that made her able to survive. You know. Yeah, and. I, I noticed on this last viewing, like, like there's a kind of similarity between David Dunn and Casey Cook. I feel like both are there's there's a feeling of deep repression around their characters, like almost bordering on like a, an emotional paralysis 
Um, you're surrounding both of them where they're just, they're completely in their own heads. They're not, they're just, they're not able to function to their fullest in the real world. Um, and in both cases, it comes from this deep pain inside them. Um, obviously, the, the reason for the pain is very, very different between the characters. But that that sense of repression and the, the way the performance is played out so quietly, it, I, don't know, I feel like that was kind of a, I thought that that could just be something Shyamalan does. Because looking at uh, Mel Gibson as Graham in Signs or uh, Joaquin Phoenix in uh, The Village... Or uh, Will Smith in After Earth, he does play with that of uh, that 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 type of character. Maybe that's just something he does. But I, I I felt kind of a kindred spirits with them. Yeah, it doesn't even feel to me so much of like it's this intentional comparison between those two, as opposed to just something that Shyamalan himself often brings to his films. And that's why I get so frustrated when he's uh, just written off as a, a one-trick pony, that trick being, you know, twist. I think that's incredibly reductive oh, yeah. um, in terms of who he is as a director and what he what he brings, because when his films are on, he brings so much layer uh, and so much character and, and, and meaning to his leads. With that being said, though, I think there are definitely... Um, those parallels that you can see with with Casey and David Dunn, where both characters feel very much just defined by by an event in their past that is, in, in the case of of Unbreakable, it's kind of this more nebulous thing, just a slow drifting apart, which is based on you know uh, the car crash and him giving up for all of this other stuff, but. There's not that one exact moment. It's just we pick up the film with it already in the past. And whatever it is, this thing that happened off camera before is what's defined him now as a character. What we know of him is based on this thing that we haven't really seen. And and it's similar with Casey where, you know, this information is slowly revealed through flashbacks. But as the characters presented and for the most uh, for most of the film, just everything about her her mannerisms, the way she deals with other people. It's just, it's this past trauma. We can, And the audience can tell it even before uh, it's been revealed. One, just because audience, you know, they'll understand cinematic language and know, you know, okay, we're clearly cutting to these flashbacks for a reason. So we know that, that something happened. And so with both characters, both movies are slowly pulling the curtain back on, on this thing that's that's just completely, as you described, like emotionally paralyzed them. Uh, and I think both films are are made rewarding on rewatches because of that. You know, the more intimate we know these characters, the less unlikable you know Casey is at the beginning. Yeah, think think about that moment, it, the first moment in the car, where after you know, after the door dings and she just looks at him. There is no fight in her; like she is incapable of fighting there's all that all there is in her eyes is fear and pleading it's so heartbreaking and honestly that was that was something that annoyed me the first time was like you're you're just gonna sit there even as someone who like was like i'm sure they're gonna explain something about her character but this is a bit much but re-watching it and seeing what she went through and just the the motif of like the the close-ups on her one 
uh, Anya Taylor-Joy just has huge eyes and very expressive eyes. And so you can, I think Shyamalan, you know, use that to his advantage. Um, and so just being up close with her, like with him explicitly making that connection between her and like a deer just caught um, caught off guard. It's just this this thing staring right into its oppressor um, or its, its hunter. Um, mm-hmm. And so on scenes like that, whenever you go back and watch it with the full context, it's, it just it takes on completely new meaning. Yeah, and then you have just the little hints where she tells Mar- Marcia to you know pee on herself, and then after that, you know, there's you can see the difference between her and Claire. Like after Dennis throws Marcia back in, and Claire's like, oh, "Okay, we're okay, everything's okay, we're okay," and then you cut to Casey, and she is just paralyzed with fear. Like, like Mar, like, like Casey is like I mean, Claire is the optimist. She's she's you know trying to hope, but Casey knows what this is. And she knows there's no hope, at least, you know, quote unquote, knows there is no hope. And she's all but resigned herself to that. And I love that it's Casey that first realizes what's going on with with uh, Kevin yeah, and the multiple personalities. You know, the other two girls just seem to be completely worried out by that. She's the one who asks, you know, Hedwig, how old are you? She's the one that starts probing. Like, she... So you assume that throughout her life she has had to learn how to manipulate her uncle you know, to try and survive and try, try to stave off abuse. So like, whereas Claire and Marcia simply view him as the other to be feared, she almost takes she views it as you know, a challenge. Like he is someone who can hopefully be manipulated to help them get out of there. It's a um. So like her game is manipulation. She throughout the entire film she's trying to build trust and build a relationship with Hedwig to try and, you know, try to try and find a way out. And she even, you know, she even plays Dennis a little bit, not as much. And, and I don't think anyone knows what to do with Patricia, but yeah, like you like it's, it's, I love just seeing the difference between how she does. And I, in this leading into glass, you know, I don't want to spoil glass. People might not have seen it, but just, they make a huge deal out of her empathy. And I feel like empathy would be, unnecessary like a a, a, compo- a form of empathy is a compo- is necessary as a component for manipulation like you have to understand how someone is feeling and how they're thinking to be able to get them to do what you want with and to and for them to think they're they're the ones who want to do it like okay going back i'm going to push the conversation back to to split an unbreakable thesis on powers where the powers always come from trauma. People, everyone who has these powers has experienced some kind of deep trauma. For Glass, it's literally being born with this, this the, you know, the breakable bone disease. For um, Don, it goes back to the time he nearly drowned. Uh, for for Kevin, it goes back to a, an incredibly abusive mother and all the personalities he created to survive out of that. And I'm going to posit something. I think Casey might be powered as well. She has the abuse. She she has the suffering. She has a lifetime of suffering with her uncle and then this ultimate ordeal with the beast. And I wonder if while in this ordeal with the beast, her empathy was awakened to where she was able to connect with Hedwig and to try and get, get, you know, try and get, get to reach him. And then there's a moment 
when after she yokes, she calls out Kevin Wendell Crom and all we go through all the personalities. She's just as they're all they're all pleading with her, you know, don't listen to Kevin, don't kill us. And she is just weeping. At first, I thought that was just kind of, you know, self-pity. She's stuck in this horrible situation. She doesn't understand it. Everything's strange. She's just terrified and horrified. But when I was listening to the score, when the track Kevin Wendell Crumb comes up, or no, it's the track Meeting the Others, it's not fear. There is no fear in that. It's just deeply, deeply sad. And I almost feel as if, yeah, sure, some of her fear in that, some of her weeping in that moment is probably from fear and just the suffering she's gone through. But a part of me thinks that part of the reason that she is weeping in that, in that moment is pity, you know, pity and, you know, feeling for this, this whole crowd of lost souls that is just, that has had a lifetime of suffering similar to hers. And then going into glass to where she is able to wield empathy almost like a weapon and, you know, to forge that connection with Kevin and, you know, to draw him out. She's able to, she's able to draw him. Out. I, I, I almost feel like this is also her origin story and her coming to understand her power of, of empathy and to be able to reach out to the monsters. It's interesting. I'll have to rewatch. I, I don't know how convinced I am that, that it's, it's a, an ability. Obviously, empathy is. Like it's, it's definitely not made apparent if it is. Yeah, I, I, the the idea of empathy with their character, though, I think is definitely something Shyamalan w- did infuse with with these stories, especially knowing where Glass goes. But but yeah, I I kind of want to rewatch it with that in mind. So uh, as you mentioned the uh, the predator and prey dynamic. And I never made that connection with the first shot, the shot I mentioned, where she just looks at him with fear and pleading. If that's the motif, where we have that shot, and then we have the deer, we're in the position of the deer looking up, and they're just kind of standing over the dead deer. And then there's a close up of the eye. And then we cut to she wakes up, and Patricia is standing over her, looking down at her the exact same way they did with the deer. And then later on, we had the close up on the deer's eye. After the fir- the first scene, we realized the way you know um, her uncle has been molesting her, and you know, she's threatening him with a shotgun, and he's you know he's yelling at her, trying to get her to stand down, and we have that exact same close up on her eye, where she gives up and essentially resigns herself to a lifetime of being the prey, and then we cut to the present where she is, has completely broken down and is weeping and is real. And, and and then after it's only after that that she truly commits to fighting. Like she's been trying to get out through manipulation the entire time before, but after that, it, it, she is truly fighting. She is like going all at it. So like she she has chosen that she will no longer be prey. And one of the most interesting things about this movie is that she doesn't win. Like the choice to fight doesn't and it doesn't mean it doesn't ensure victory. Like she would have died if he had not seen herself harm scars. And it's she is she lives off the beast, not, not mercy, but whatever his warped worldview is. The, the, the final scene with the beast reminds me so much of that final scene with uh, Elijah Price, Mr. Glass in Unbreakable, where I talked about last week how it was this 
really warped, messed up feeling of catharsis we got. We're, we're learning that this crazy man murdered hundreds of people. And yet I am also like weeping at the beauty of his, him learning who he is and finding a purpose. Like uh, he's a, Shyamalan is able to make us empathize with the monsters. And in the a similar way, as you know, he sees her scars and he's like, essentially tells her, you know, you're pure, you've suffered. You are not like the others. And he says, rejoice as screwed up, as fundamentally screwed up as that message is. There is still a powerful emotion to it for me. It's because we have empathy. Yeah. For, for full clarification, I don't know. I don't you know very intimately know anyone. I don't know many people who have suffered from that kind of abuse. I, I know a few. Um, I'm very close to someone. And I, I do know someone who has, you know, has, you know, dealt with self-harm. But, you know, I, I've, not, I've not made a study of that. Just understand that I'm not, if I put my foot in my mouth and, you know, someone who has, has you know, suffered that kind of abuse is listening. I'm working, I, I'm, I'm operating out of ignorance, out of a lot of ignorance here. So bear with me. I don't know how someone who has suffered from abuse will feel about this movie. And then that's always something, you know, it's always a danger filmmakers and storytellers have when they use this for a story. But I think I can confidently say Shyamalan's intention was empowerment. I think his intention, you know, to say that these people are stronger than the, the abuse, that the abuse doesn't fully define them and that they, they don't have to, they don't have to view themselves as prey. There's, they, you know, they have experienced something that other people haven't. And while that, you know, that's obviously not a good thing, you know, it's a horrible tragedy. That there is something that, that that can make them stronger for it, and that might that might be horrible and warped and messed up, and maybe it's a terrible message. I don't I don't know enough about this, but I am far more forgiving of someone if I believe their heart's in the right place, and the, the you know a mistake made out of good intentions is far more forgivable than you know just than just someone who doesn't even think about what they're doing. I feel like he is trying to be empowering. I think he's trying to give the audience empathy for people who have suffered this abuse. Like in this moment, I at least feel a deep, not, not this pity, but not only pity, just this emotional connection with her and the, the suffering she's had to endure. Like it reminded me of a monster calls where I talked about like, I have never experienced that deep kind of grief, but after watching that movie, I feel like I can have some level of empathy for people who have. Like I, don't, I, don't, I really, I don't, I'm really honestly just kind of making up my mind as I go right now, and I'm just kind of talk, thinking out loud. But I do feel this came from a good place, whether or not it's actually, and I don't know enough to declare whether it is or not. But for me, in that moment, there is a deep emotional catharsis for me, I, and I find that as twisted and warped as that moment is. I think there's something powerful about it. Yeah, th you know, this is very similar to the conversation we had whenever we first recorded our mini-sode back in 2017, whenever it came out. And I think it was a, a similar conclusion of just, again, not knowing, not, not having intimate details of this kind of thing. You know, obviously, <laughs> anything we say should not at all be taken... Um, as like our final say on it uh, 
But like you, I, I do feel in that moment that Shyamalan is trying to make um, what is a good message um, that might just be, and it would, also might not be, uh, mishandled. But, but I do appreciate the fact that there is some, like, there's this idea of, of hope and not, you know, not, not redemption, but this idea of, of growth from hurt, kind of, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of ordeal. But, but I think within the context of the movie, you know, not even, not addressing the actual horrible things that happen in the world. Within the context of the film, I, I think that moment really is a really strong moment. And the thing, like, as I said, she doesn't, she doesn't win. She lives from the benevolence of the beast. And yet I still feel like if she had died in that moment, she herself is a stronger, more whole person in the, the final 15 minutes than she had, you know, she had been for the last 10 years. Like she chose to fight and for her, that is everything. And you know, that's, that's not what movies do. You know, movies, you know, you have the personal revelation and the personal revelation is what helps you win. This movie doesn't do that, but the personal revelation is still there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, but, but going back, you know, going back to that idea of heroes and vi- heroes and villains are both born out of trauma you look at comic books, like they all do this. You know, Tony Stark is reborn after spending months in a cave held, held you know, held, held captive by terrorists. Peter Parker is born out of the death of Uncle Ben. Uh, Captain America is just awesome because he's great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, this is just, okay, just running through the list. Who we got? Um, Black Panther loses his father. Batman. Yeah, Black Widow great. was, <laughs> Batman. <laughs> Batman's born out of his parents' death. Black Widow, you know, had that life of, of you know, being used as a weapon for coming to like. The, the the being birthed out of trauma has always been a staple of super, of comic books stories. So, learning that this is actually a comic book story kind of puts that into perspective. But the, I I don't think it's ever been made as overt as Shyamalan has done in Unbreakable Split and Glass, to where it is those who have suffered, and the suffering makes them more. It's an interesting thought. <laughs> you got anything to add to that? No, I I feel like. You know, one of the things that's interesting about this trilogy is taken within just one film. Some of these ideas I might hear and be like, okay, maybe. But I think we do see repetition in in what he's doing across the three films. Uh, And so this idea of of strength through um, hurt and oppression and and, uh, trauma and and becoming greater for that i think i think we see that in all three of them and but it's 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 not it's i don't think if i find it glib because it also it doesn't always turn out well like you're not like oh you had a hard life you're gonna be a hero it could also it could push you the wrong way as well and that pain can push you down a very dark path but even still you know like we talked about last week it's weird because even though it pushes them down the dark this dark path it still doesn't rob them of those moments of catharsis. I mean, when you think about Unbreakable and Glass, the final moments of each film for Glass are are moments of relief and uh, seemingly 
being 100% okay with, with the circumstance. So, so even when it does push you the other way, it's still, it never feels like that black and white kind of line. And the thing about the Horde is, you know, Kevin's not a bad guy. Most of the identities aren't, aren't, are, you know, decent people just trying to live with the pain. It's the, it's the minor, the minority, the, the Horde, that, that group, the, the, the cult group that has arisen, you know, out of the worst of the pain that, is doing the evil. So in, even in Glass, in this movie and in Glass, you still in part view a portion of the Horde as victim. But I mean, I think even the ones that are like serving as as the antagonist were still meant to have some sense of understanding, like where it's not just pure evil without any sort of of a underlying motivation or anything like with with um the beast at the end you know he's he's got this principle that uh that he seems to adhere to strictly where you know his he has his moment of catharsis as glass did uh, or as as mr mr glass did at the end of unbreakable where he's seeing uh the scars of casey and and he celebrates you know this is you are strong you know he's in his own way he's helping humanity he's weeding out the weak and he's preserving the strong and and then moving into glass you know we have moments where i think we're meant to kind of feel for patricia and stuff and so even in those who serve in the most explicitly antagonistic functions i think there's always some sense of of understanding we're meant to have yes just Moving to actual discussion of the characters within Kevin. Uh, the first one we're introduced to is Dennis. Apparently, he's kind of a pervert. He has a proclivity for watching girls dance naked, and he also, you know, uh, there's like the, the scene where he grabs Marcy. Like, there's also there's also this like I feel like there's this kind of struggle within him. He knows it's wrong, and uh, it's almost like a child the way he comes back like a whipped dog. You know, Patricia says, "I'm not to touch you again," and it's just the way. There's a weird pleading in his voice after after he finds Claire in the locker. He's like, "I'm trying to be good. You know, I'm gonna let you keep your last shirt." Like, also, there's that the whole weird thing of where I almost feel like he's using his OCD as an excuse to get the clothes off the girls. Like, there's really this really weird perverted sense. Um, like it's it's a really good performance. You you get the feeling the character. The character is very aware of slights against him, or if he, he's very afraid of being manipulated. You know, he's telling you you shouldn't trick children. That shows who you are. As he's holding girls hostage, of course. But like, it's just a fascinating character for as you know, twisted and messed up as he is. Like, I love just how uptight he is. He just feels like he's so wound up and uncomfortable with the world and wishing he were somewhere else. The crease between his eyebrows is just impressive. I think of all of of all of the characters that he takes on, he's maybe the most interesting to me. Where it's like, I think he's he's aware of his problems, and I think in his own mind, you know, he's he's not even a bad person. He knows his faults, but it's I don't know. It's it's just an interesting way. Part of me, an, another part of me wonders about the decision to to have him have that past you know where where we're told like he had a habit of watching girls dance naked like i i I wonder what that adds to the character 
plot wise, I understand you know, it's getting back to you know being able to see Casey's scars at the end. Yeah, yeah. And, so know, it's, and it's the, the, the little the little lines like he says he got a lot of shirts. Like it does. It actually has a deep emotional weight for Casey. Yeah, functionally it it achieves that. But I, again, it's kind of I would ask the same kind of question as as with the other ones where is is it a means to an end kind of again um or is there is there something about that 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 makes him more compelling that's a question i too wonder if this is Shyamalan trying to play into the more trashy schlocky avenues that horror goes down but like he's like his films are so like leading up to this films is like so pure and chaste the love stories are all very old-fashioned like like if if this is him trying to be kind of trashy it's almost like a miserable failure because he doesn't even know how to like the scenes aren't shot in a way that feels exploitative you know like it doesn't feel like he's just ogling the girls in their underwear but there are girls in their underwear on screen so why like i don't know yeah and you know part of part of me wonders it it kind of helps with that that tone that i described when we were talking about a cinematography of of just feeling obtrusive and uncomfortable. Um, that's almost how those scenes feel like they're being played because it doesn't feel exploitive at all. And we're in those moments, we're meant to have, you know, total sympathy for these girls that are essentially just kind of being humiliated at the moment. They're already terrified. And so it doesn't at all feel like the typical kind of horror reasons that you would get, uh, that you would start addressing the uh the characters here it yeah. it just feels like it's one more layer of adding uncomfort and obtrusiveness to to the scene where it just feels like this isn't right you know yeah and it has dramatic purpose it has you know dramatic purpose for dennis as a character and then it has an enormous dramatic purpose for casey so it's not like it's it's not like there's no narrative reason there's a definitely a case to be made. I would probably make it that it wasn't necessary to, to shoot them like that, but I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to instantly write, you know, throw him under the bus. Just maybe, maybe later. <laughs> um, yeah. Then we have a, you know, I guess, well, we see, we only see Barry like twice, but Dennis as Barry is a lot of fun. We are very, uh, his conversations with, um, Clay, uh, with uh, Fletcher are just a lot of fun. The, the, the the line they write, especially when she's really pushing him hard, Doctor Fletcher, please, I'm not Dennis, I'm Barry. Like where he's almost on the verge of breaking down, and you, you could like you don't even know is this Dennis acting as him or is this Dennis also breaking down? Like oh, it's it's so beautifully played. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. You know, we've talked a lot about the characters he plays. We haven't really just talked about McAvoy and his his acting. He is absolutely amazing in this movie, and that's one of my favorite scenes. Where, so he's he's got to play the character Dennis. He's got to play the character Barry, and now he has to play the character Dennis, playing the character Barry. And I feel like you know after you see the real Barry, and you compare that to like Dennis as Barry getting pushed, that all of a sudden that feels like. A performance within a performance it really does feel like de- someone who speaks and naturally acts like Dennis trying to put on that kind of a show um, it's just so amazing how much 
he's able to convey through like the tone in his voice and facial expressions and you can kind of see where that that facade of Barry he's putting up starts to break down and then you can clearly see just the moment where he fades from Barry into Dennis it's just I love that shot and and that that all happens in one cut and we're we're not like moving back and forth everything is on screen for the audience to track with and it just holds up so well where it it i mean it's like watching thaden get cured in two towers it's like a, a total transformation on screen that just feels seamless and the th- the highest praise i can give james mackerel's performance is that after five or ten minutes i never thought about james mcavoy i thought about dennis i thought about hedwig and i thought about patricia they are different people and you can tell from them, even if they're all wearing the same clothes, you can tell from the moment they come on screen, they don't have to say a word, just the way they stand, the way fa- they hold, hold their faces, who it is. That's something that I, w- I just thought was so impressive about it was that while I, I think the, the wardrobe idea, like that's a really great visual idea and I think it, it does, or, you know, serves the movie well, but it's not even necessary. That like, if you see those shoulders kind of, pulled back a little bit and everything's all kind of prim and proper you know who it is you just you know these people by the way they carry themselves and it's not it's not too much because it's like it's like oh i'm you know i'm patrician now i'm just gonna walk with my head held super super high briskly around it's like it never feels exaggerated to the point of being like comedic there's he's definitely has these different styles that he plays them all as um but he brings such a, a real amount of nuance and subtlety as well that like for the fact that like yeah just the voice itself gives it away but the way he moves his head when he's patricia to look at um casey is different than like the very stern like quick movement that uh, dennis would look over at her or just the kind of aloofness of hedwig yeah and the the, the thing is like a, t- a teenage girl waking up with a grown man like laying on top of her, it's a horribly disturbing thing. But even in that moment, you're like, "Oh, that's Hedwig. It's a nine-year-old kid just being weird." And the fact that he can make that scene, it's still really awkward, but not as you know deeply, horrifyingly creepy as it would as it should be. It's, it's so, it's all of that is in the performance, and you know, him knowing exactly who this is playing and being able to, being able to um to just project that all just through the way he lays there and Hedwig Hedwig, Hedwig's great Uh, the kid is the kid's definitely a bit of a psychopath and he really enjoys the thought of people being afraid of him like the whole thing is you know people make fun of me they think I'm stupid I mean I made some mistakes but you know I'm going to show them and the whole thing is you know Miss Patricia says that people people will no longer make fun of me and at, at the end when after she calls, you know, after she says Kevin Wendell Crumb, and we go through the whole cycle of people, and it cuts back to Hagrid, like, oh, you're scared now. Yeah, you, you know I'm legit now. And it's like, he's he's enjoying this fear of the little psychopath. That is crazy, because, like, I, I feel like he's kind of set up initially to be the one that we're going to kind of even root for, you know. As, as we manipulate, we, we do so not, like, in this ha-ha kind of way even you know in the audience we're not like cheering to just manipulate this poor little nine-year-old kid um but i think there's some level of like pity we're meant to have by this this kid who's stuck with all of these other people and just wants to get taken seriously 
uh, and the the dancing scene in his room is freaking amazing. <laughs> the kiss, yeah. It's so awkward. Oh, Vanya, you might be, you might be pregnant now. <laughs> he plays the night of these so well. Yeah, he, like he is a kid. It's not. He's not playing a caricature of a kid. Like I feel like he watched kids for a long. Which sounds creepy. <laughs> he, like he watched the Mandalorians for a long time, and just like there's there's a randomness to the way kids act. Just they'll, they'll just make a flailing movement because they feel like it, or just they should be talking about one thing. And, you know, I also have blue socks. I had a hot dog. This, this, you know, I I I, I have ten younger siblings and. This guy, when he's I, I watching him, I 100% believe this is a nine-year-old kid. Yeah. There is such a truth and authenticity into this performance. Like, And then, of course, we have the actual reveal of, of the Beast. And, and like I said, the first time watching this, I was not a fan. Uh, especially when, when we see him crawling on the wall and, and everything. I... I thought that you know this this is where it's it's jumped the shark it's it's a bit much you know but now that I'm I'm at a place where I can fully accept it I love his performance as the beast like he feels so primal and animalistic but also weirdly well spoken yeah well McAvoy's voice is just awesome but like as as well spoken as he is like the way he's like able to project his voice and sound you know bigger than he is and uh and the movement the shot of him uh climbing on the ceiling and like bashing out the lights crawling closer and closer he's just he becomes so terrifying and and you know like he's not actually doing that like crawling across and breaking out the lights but the movie does so much to like set him up and his abilities and and McAvoy is so so good in the role that I think like the most terrifying moment with him in it for me is when he's got his face between the bars and the blood coming out between his teeth. And it McAvoy is, is like, just becomes like a horror monster right there. Like he is this terrifying villain of, of these movies in this kind of genre. He, it's just so freaky. Yeah. And another thing I really love, I, I loved like slowly learning about the politics and the whole culture of all these different personalities, just the little lines that kind of came out, you know, they, they, you know, he with the way Hedwig now found you know, somehow controls the light. You know, Barry used to be the leader. The horde has now been kind of banished from the light because they're crazy and they're they're like a crazy cult. Dennis and Patricia are able to uh, get Hedwig on their side because they'll, you know, essentially manipulate him, telling him people will respect him afterwards. Like there's like a whole culture going on in there, and I just love the way we slowly kind of teased out the information to where, but you know, by the end we feel like we understand how he works. Then when we actually we finally meet Kevin, I swear I was in a bus. He's like he just. He's been gone for what, like four, three, two or two to four years, and you know he's completely aware of what he is, and you know, and I think he, I think he's well aware of you know probably the misdeeds that Dennis has done in the past, and he, you know, he just tells you know, kill me because he, he probably he knows he can't control the light, he knows he's gonna disappear, and he just he doesn't want to hurt anyone. It's, it's, oh, it's so heartbreaking, and I feel like that, that is what. Casey latches on to realizing that underneath all of this, underneath the horrifying beast, underneath the, you know, underneath Dennis and Patricia and Hedwig underneath, underneath all of them is just this terrified 
young man who has had nothing but a life of pain and suffering, who's literally created these personalities as a shield from the you know slings and arrows of the, of the world. It's, it's it it hurts, man. It and it hurts because one, just Kevin as a character, like that's depressing. <laughs> that he he gives up essentially his just consciousness for so long, and you know his life has been just so tragic with it with his childhood and everything his character alone is is depressing but it kind of reshapes the way you look at um the other personalities you know with you know there's there's a level of again like manipulation with with um betty buckley's character dr fletcher where she's talking about him she you know she's like uh, i admire you i respect you. like you helped kevin but I think there's also a you know a level of sincerity there. I think there's an understanding of of just the the role that Dennis had felt like he had to step into, you know, in, that, in that's his mind. He's, even further in glass. Exactly. Yeah, like they're they are there to serve this purpose. Um and so it even kind of it makes the individual personalities themselves more tragic. And and the- Cutting back to the conversation on like you know how, how tasteful this is, um, but going way back to when we talk, we had uh, Eric Skorzynski on to talk about uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street. When I brought up the issue of the appropriateness of like a schlocky, goofy horror film using you know using very real pain like abuse as I wouldn't say a gimmick, but just, you know, a, a, as a story beat, like, is that appropriate? But there was a response. He, you know, he had a response that I really liked. He talked about how horror, at least when it's done well, is a way for us to express and examine our fears through art. Like, we, like the, the really, look at all the really influential horror films. They, they, they play into a fear that we are having. Like you look at like, like the uh, invasion of the body snatchers. That's kind of like going into like red scare. I guess the thing is like kind of the, the par- uh, like paranoia and distrust of your fellow band. Um, Even more intimate things like the exorcist where just this idea of, of, of fleeting innocence, you know, or uh, like the slashers, which I, I don't really take all that seriously, but even then it's like, you know, it's like a warning to teens, you know, don't have sex, don't party, don't drink, or else you're going to get chopped up by a monster. It's like, it's, it's, it's like societal fears working themselves out. And honestly, I dislike a lot of horror films because I, I feel like they, they just want to scare people and have some brutality, have some gore, have some boobs and just, you know, have a little bit of fun and then on the end they want to tack on some meaning by tackling by, by tackling a, a meaningful subject and i feel like it feels very lazy but i would agree with eric's sentiment here where i feel like movies like this or uh, are trying in good faith to examine fears and and just real things like real things like deity real things like abuse um and are trying to examine them in a thoughtful and provocative way you know know, again i don't know how tasteful it is but i i I do appreciate that thought that 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 these films exist because we are afraid of something and this is an expression of that or either afraid of something or just he wants it's just something he wants to think about it it often just feels like it's the artist himself 
working through it's like a, a thought process even if it's not just explicitly expressing a fear it's just it's taking a thought and working it out through through film yeah and, and I, one last big thing i love how this film always places me in the role of the skeptic at the beginning of this film like no matter how many times i see it through the first two acts, I'm always like on Dr. Fletcher's side, like, yeah, the beast can't be real. Like this is this is this is crazy. Like this isn't the world we live in. And yet and so like every time where the beast is actually revealed and the, we, we get to the end, it's like it's still that that emotional that emotional intellectual impact never it never lessens because somehow he's he's so cleverly able to place the audience in the role of the skeptic and the doubter at the beginning of the film, no matter how many times you've seen it. It's really, really cool, I think. Do you have that experience? Or do you, or do you <laughs> you kind of buy it all along now no i well i think the proof that i was a skeptic was my disappointment that it was really like no this is this is just not the way things are um but then when you tell me it's in a comic book universe then all of a sudden and and especially an origin one you know because when we're five movies deep into a comic book film everybody's used to alien invasions and whatnot but with those early films those origins you do have the skeptics all the time and so now I almost feel like I enjoy the reveal and enjoy playing the part of the skeptic even more on on rewatches because I know the context of the film and that it, that helps me accept and enjoy the reveal. But he does do such a good job of like walking this line between movie and believability, like just walking that line really well to where. I do feel like I'm like okay no this this isn't what's believable this is what's believable and I can kind of journey with the characters into like with their surprise at at what's you know the reality of uh of the events and and so yeah I think the reveal for Dr. Fletcher you know when she she looks in horror at at what he is and and the same thing with Casey like I think it works really really well every time I said last thing, but one more thing. I was listening to an interview. He talked about how when he makes movies, he wants to essentially force the audience to, he wants to force audience investment and make them be proactive in understanding the story. I really respect that. Like, I, what I don't like is where I feel like a film is being obtuse and not and really try, trying to force engagement but doesn't actually have any answers it's just asking questions and being really vague but it doesn't actually have an answer like but with it, I, I but i feel like with all of Shyamalan's good films there is there are untold ideas and questions and answers within the structure if you just care to look but you do have to look like his films don't allow passive viewing they are and they, they require a level of investment, a level of thought, a level of mon- emotional connection that I, that I find if you are willing to give that, he could give you t- like experiences that I just you, that you will not feel anywhere else. And that's why I feel like some of the dismissal towards Shyamalan comes from is people just aren't interested or maybe just maybe just they just can't do his tone, but like, people who just aren't able to in, either aren't able to or won't invest in his films like you you they are going to feel very surface level they are going to feel gimmicky but I, I i really do feel that if you if you go with it in all his good films there is something incredibly special inside them 
and often a lot of different things. Like I, you can spend days and weeks thinking about almost any one of his good films. Yes, this is the, that, 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 that's why like, even when he went bad, I always have just such an immense respect for him and always wanted him to come back because there's just such a unique voice I think he brings. All right, so I think I think we pretty well covered this. I do want to have a, a quick discussion about the score. Unfortunately, this score is not done by um, James Newton Howard. This one was done by West Dylan Thornton. And I want, I want to be careful that what I'm going to say, I don't want any of this to sound like a dismissal of Thornton's work because I think it's a great score, but... I do really wish he was still with um, Howard. I they, they, the way they worked together in just developing things. They they had such a perfect uh, kind of synthesis of their styles together that was just so powerful. I think that for Glass, I'm actually kind of glad uh, it wasn't Howard in this film. Hmm. I think Howard brings Howard's a much more emo. He's much more open emotionally like he's really playing with your emotions all throughout the film his 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 themes are deeply emotionally resonant and he the way he just kind of plays with themes throughout and he's much he's he's just more musical than Thornton's Thornton's score it actually feels very similar to Blade Runner 2049's where it's part of the soundscape it's not so much a cup music but it's just a lot of these unnerving sounds, like almost doubling as sound effects. It's very, like in the moment, whenever I watch the film, I'm really, I, I love the score. But outside, it's not as fun of a uh, a thing to listen to because it is so kind of elemental and abstract. Um, he's just a very experimental composer. So going through some of the tracks, uh, first you have opening, which is just this really guttural, growling cello. It is, it's the beast theme. And I love that even at the opening of the film, he's signaling that the beast is real and he's coming for us, like, even though we don't know it. Yeah, honestly, like this track and a couple others is, is why I'm glad it was given to someone like Thornton as opposed to Howard. is because I love how atmospheric it is and unnerving and wrong the score feels like. Like this doesn't even feel like it should be a, a piece of composition, you know, like it's just off and foreboding and, and creepy. And this film is far more openly horrific than a lot of previous, like like the, the, the previous quote unquote horror films from Shyamalan were often like dramas masquerading as horror films. This one I think is a true horror thriller. It still has all the drama, but it's a lot creepier. And, than and a lot of that's, sc- that's also why I like the, the way the score here is, is presented because I think it's also, it allows the the twist reveal of this being a comic book sequel. It allows it to hide under a genre even more, like you know, just, just overall better. Like more, there's more of a tight lid on on the secret here because it really is operating fully functionally as this kind of film. Mm-hmm. And I li- I like the way he he weaves in the I can't even call like I don't even know if I want to call it the beast theme because it is so unmusical, but like. I'm just gonna call it a theme, but yeah, like then you have like the be- it comes back and the beast is on the move. Um, I'm really sad you feel that way, which is a really interesting track because th- that's like where he like finally turns on Dr. Fletcher, and it, it, the, the track starts with this really sad piano, and then it's like slowly drowned out by this the guttural rumble and buzz of the beast. Um, it was really interesting storytelling wise. Um, then it comes back in Casey meets the ba- beast, where it's like the that theme on full blast and it's really threatening. Like it's like kind of horrifying to listen to just how abrasive it is in that moment. Then there's uh, what's wrong with Barry. This is like 
a piano and light strings. It's almost playful. Uh, there's, but there's also kind of sadness to it that it's occasionally dangerous with a bit of the beast rumblings underneath. Uh, and there's a uh, Dr. Fletcher in Philadelphia. I like this one a lot. It's, I guess it's Dr. Fletcher's theme, but it's some kind of dulcimer. It sounds a little Asian, um, but also a bit of piano. It's just a really soulful and emotional piece of music. Very beautiful sounding. Then these last three I really like. You have Meet the Others, which is just this deep, swelling emotion. It's far more, it's just bigger and more expansive in sound than pretty much anything else in this score. Um, far more, and it's also more musical sounding. Um, it's open on a level of emotion that the film just hasn't been before. And we, it's where we could just see the, the in, in full light the extent of Crumb's just misery and the plight that is his life. Then there's Kevin Wendell Crumb, which is this very, very soft and soulful take on the Beast theme. It's, 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 it's the Beast theme. It has that same rise and fall, that guttural sound, but it's very soft. There's a lot more musicality underneath it. Um, it's really heartbreaking. This is my favorite track in the film, and the one that I, I listen to outside of just like, you know, for recording purposes uh, a lot. It gets stuck in my head at work a lot. It, there's something almost like surreal and dreamlike about it, uh, but like hauntingly so. Mm-hmm. There's like this this sense of revelation, but it's this uneasy kind of revelation. Uh, I don't know. I just I really really love the way it sounds and how it, it's really soft and soothing while still being like just really emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. Then there's these two tracks that go together. You have Rise of the Beast, which is almost, it's like almost majestic. And it's, it's a mix of the Beast theme and Kevin Window Crom, where it's like kind of at the midpoint. It's not as harsh as the Beast, and it's not as soft as Kevin Window Crom. It's like a, kind of a more majestic, awe inspiring version take on that, where he's coming to his own. And that moves directly into Rejoice, which is like these really soft strings, and then this really horrifyingly sad and mournful whistle that kind of comes in and out. And it's just this like slow build of pure emotion. This is quiet, heartbreaking catharsis. Um, there's a, and also what I love is like, there's a bit of the beast's rumble inside of it, but now it's not dangerous anymore. As if, you know, she knows like the beast isn't going to hurt us. So, like that, that this, this, this uh, rejoice plays over as Casey is being walked out of, um, the zoo worker finds her and he's taking her up to the, you know, to the, to the ambulance. Like all, we're just going through all the emotions that we felt. And the, it's Casey is essentially, you know, being reborn back into the light after the ordeal she's went, went through. And, you know, she's a, she's a new person essentially. And like the fear of the beast, it's like the beast is present, but the fear is gone. I cannot listen to this without getting deeply emotional. There's something just so, it just it just feels like a a quiet catharsis that has been building for the whole movie, and she's finally become emo- you know she's become emotionally present after being so repressed after all this time. And also, one thing I forgot to talk about is like in the car, you know, the film ends on kind of a quasi cliffhanger where the, where the female cop comes and says, you know, your uncle's here to pick you up, and she just looks at her and. I always interpreted that look to be she's going to tell because it cut back to the female cop and like you could tell there was there was something there was a connection between them happening there and I, I always took it to mean she's going to tell and I, and I remember some people who did take it up who, who watched this and thought like oh my gosh she went through all that she's just going back to her uncle this film sucks 
Um, but I, and I was glad when Glass came around that yes, she did indeed turn her uncle in. But and I think the reason I believe she did because it's a very similar look that she gives. You know, the scene I talked about where she she turns and looks at Dennis, and she's just there's just terror and pleading and helplessness. When she turns and looks at at the cop, there's no fear. Like there's no pleading. There's no sadness. It's just quiet determination. Like she is a different person. Yeah, I I got the same feeling because to me, those those two shots are very intentionally like bookending the the film, and and I think just the expressions are different to me. Whenever I look at her in the first scene, I see just total resignation. And in here in this last scene, to me, it looks like resolve, not confidence, but like a like a conclu- like a conclusion come to based on the events you know there there's been growth she she's kind of come alive by what she went through and this is the first step in her essentially living out in the outside world rather than just existing under this fear and torment she's she's choosing to live and then just about the um that track i i too like get really really emotional in the moment especially whenever i'm hearing like hearing it in the context of the film you know as she's being walked up and we're looking around at the zoo and it's a it's a perfect kind of epilogue music but it really gets me every time another track that i really liked is a way out mm-hmm. it's really really suspenseful and it's got that that rising piano like that really fast pace uh piano that that plays it's in this as well as a couple other tracks it pretty much starts playing anytime people are on the move and like the escape theme or something yeah and and every single time when it starts coming on i feel myself like moving closer and closer to the edge of my seat just really really effective in the moment at building tension yeah i like that one a lot as well so like as far as the overall score i i like it a lot it's a very good score it is perfect for the film it's not the type that i'm going to listen to as much as like a james newton howard just because it's not as enjoyable for me to listen to. Although I do like uh, rejoice is a track that I go to whenever I feel like I need a good cry or something. Um, so let's go to our star rating and how we rank this film. We use a five star 10 point system. Uh, 2.5 is completely average, neither positive or negative. Three stars and above is positive and two stars and below is a negative. So James, what do you give this out of five stars and how do you rank it against unbreakable? I give this a, a four out of five. Uh, and that's actually what I gave it the very first time I watched it. And it's been pretty consistent uh, though I think I have enjoyed it more and more with rewatches. Uh, however, the thing that's changed is uh, I used to rate this higher than Unbreakable. However, with Unbreakable, my enjoyment of that has just grown exponentially. And so uh, I put Unbreakable number one and Split number two. Yeah, I- I'm also at four stars. Um, I w- like There are t- moments in this film where I really want to go for the 4.5, but I think you know the, the, the really clunky exposition, some of the awkward structure in the first act, and the possibility of some distastefulness going on like so say so i guess uh four stars more 4.25 kind of thing like i really like this movie and similar to you i hadn't seen unbreakable in a few years and so when split came out i just i had much more of an emotional reaction to it immediately and for you know for up until the last rewatch of unbreakable before glass i did rank split above it but now you know the, these last two viewings yeah that, that, that's a masterpiece this film isn't quite so it is unbreakable over Split for now and probably forever. So on its initial release, uh, Split was a massive financial success. It earned $138 million domestically and $140 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $278 million on its $9 million budget. 
that's amazing. <laughs> um, it's actually Blumhouse's third highest grossing film of all time after Get Out and Halloween. It is the highest grossing tri- uh, film in the trilogy, unadjusted for inflation. And it was pretty well received critically. Uh, like For Shyamalan at, in 2016, that is huge. They liked the visit, and they were kind of waiting on Split to see, is Shyamalan really back? Can I, you know, can I trust him again? And for most people, the answer was yes. Uh, it's got a 77% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 62 on a Metacritic. You know, not amazing, but most people at least liked it. Um, and I think that coupled with the... The uncertain kind of comeback of the visit really helped, like, establish some confidence in him as a director. Yeah. So, you know, James McAvoy, Anya Taylor-Joy, and uh, Betty Buckley were all praised, as well as, you know, Shyamalan's direction and the atmosphere and the tension of the film. Uh, The final reveal of The Beast does seem to be kind of a sticking point for a lot of people. Like, some people, like, even the reveal of David Dunn doesn't entirely fix that for them then there's the other criticisms of you know the usual things you hear about Shyamalan films you know the pacing the awkward dialogue the odd tone as far as the film's legacy uh I feel like we're probably gonna have to wait for a bit before we really see what it is and how it solidifies at the time it seemed like I I probably would have thought that I could have given you a definitive answer and be like this is what established like the true return of Shyamalan but and we've got glass being very mixed um and so I've seen a lot of people saying, ah, this is, you know, this is clearly split was a was a fluke. It wasn't really uh, a return. And and I've actually seen a lot of people like almost like revisit split after glass and be like, you know what? Even split wasn't that great. Really, it just hinges on James McAvoy's performance. Like I've seen that shared a lot. I don't like how can you watch the, ha- the happening and watch this and not see like this this is yeah. not the same filmmaker like at least at least acknowledge the craft. and that's the thing like i just i've seen a lot of people call it boring um and and with glass being as divisive as it was you know it really didn't help them get back on board with Shyamalan. so i think i think this film's legacy is kind of up in the air um but time has been very kind to Shyamalan's good films the way Unbreakable's legacy has blossomed. I don't. I think it's a, it's a very fair assumption to be made that a similar thing could happen with this and Glass. You know, like Glass just came out this year, and Glass really kind of redef- goes a long way to, defi- to defining what Split actually was. And you know, a lot of people just like Glass, and that's some weird film. I don't know if people are fully going to come going to fully come around. We'll get into that next episode, but I think I think time will be kind to Split. I hope so because I think it deserves it. All right, um, so that was our review of Split. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd like to ask you, again, head over to iTunes and subscribe, and also just leave a, us a rating and review. It would be very helpful. If you want to like us on Facebook, uh, we are there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we are there as at FranchisedPod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, And you can join us over on Facebook at our Star Wars group, uh, The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. We are right in the middle of a Clone Wars marathon. Uh, So if you're if you really enjoy Star Wars still and and you're wanting to continue having fun as we lead into the rise of Skywalker, then definitely join us over there for that marathon. And I am also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. I am on Twitter as Gabe A. Green and I am on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. So next week, we are going to finish this trilogy with the highly anticipated and equally controversial film, 
glass. And, you know, I think we've, we've kind of come to a consensus on this film that, that rewatches are good for Shyamalan. So I'm really wondering what you'll, how you'll feel about it this time. I am too. And here's the thing, like, well, <laughs> I'll save my thoughts for next episode. <laughs> I am very much hopeful to like it more. And honestly, worst case scenario, I will never outright dislike the film. Um, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about it regardless. All right. So until next week, we will see you in the mental asylum. The beast is real. <laughs>